You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This episode features discussions of how we might communicate with other worlds, what heat is, how an Ant-Man suit might work, and other topics in physics and astronomy. Let's have a listen. Do you think it's possible to communicate with other worlds outside our solar system? So one of the big questions is, are we actually going to be able to make a spacecraft that goes to Alpha Centauri, the nearest star um, four light years away, um, the uh, nearest star other than the sun? Well, it's, uh, it's really... It's tough to make a spacecraft that can go that far. It's gonna take a really long time. One of the things that's sort of surprising is that if you just keep accelerating, just keep accelerating, you get to go really quite fast. If you can succeed in keeping on accelerating, even if the acceleration is really very little acceleration, if you do it for long enough, eventually you build up to go quite fast. As I explained before, when you go close to the speed of light, um, it gets harder and harder and harder to push the object to go even, even faster, close to the speed of light. There are also other problems, like if you're going close to the speed of light, you're tooling along your spacecraft, you're going through interstellar space between our sun and the nearest star. Um, it's like, are you gonna hit things? Um, well, it turns out there's about one hydrogen atom per cubic center, per cubic meter in interstellar space. So, uh, and, but if you're going really close to the speed of light, even that can be a problem. And if there was a speck of dust there, you're toast. Your spacecraft is going to be completely destroyed. Going at the speed of light, you hit a speck of dust. It's kind of um, tremendous amount of energy is exchanged, and um, it's, it's kind of bad news. But um, in the um, uh, so there's a question of can you can you accelerate something to go uh, and get it to go close enough to the speed of light that you can get to Alpha Centauri in a reasonable time? Um, getting a big spacecraft there is going to be really tough. Uh, there's people I know who have an idea that they're going to get really tiny spacecraft there. Um, actually, I was, uh, um, uh, um, I, I, I got a little thing. Maybe I could get up and get it. I, okay, I'm going to just one little prop here. Let's see if I can find it. No, I, I, forget it. I have a little, little thing. I was at a, 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 um, uh, an event and um, uh, it was a person showing off um, um, uh, showing off a very, very tiny uh, little uh, device that might be a thing that could be used as a very, very, very tiny spacecraft. And so it's a little tiny circuit and it has these little tiny wires that hang out from it. And the idea is, instead of sending a big spacecraft to, let's say, the nearest star, send a really, really tiny spacecraft and maybe push it by using a powerful laser on the Earth, uh, light, when, when you have a beam of light um, that hits something and is reflected back, let's say you have a mirror, the photon hits the mirror and the photon is reflected back. It's a little bit like a billiard ball, you know, or a ball. You, you hit something and the ball is reflected back. The momentum of the ball, a little bit of the momentum of the ball is transferred to the object that reflects the, uh, the, uh, the ball back. And the same thing happens for photons. And so if you have a powerful laser um, and you can have a thing that is reflecting the laser light, um, there will be a small force exerted by that laser light. So if you, if you shine this laser and you can shine it on something and you keep shining it for a long time, it will gradually accelerate the thing. And if your spacecraft is tiny enough, you can make it go pretty fast. And maybe you can make it eventually go to, uh, to the nearest star. Well, I was at this event and this 
person was showing this off and I was like, um, can I buy one of these things from you? Because I just want to be able to say that I bought a Starship for five bucks or something. So I have this little tiny circuit board, which is a prototype, let's say, um, Starship um, that uh, is of the type that might one day be sent to, um, uh, uh, to, to, to other stars. Now, one thing I, I might mention, uh, it's a consequence of relativity, is that um, if you, if we sent people, for example, to other stars, um, the, and we accelerated them so that they were going very close to the speed of light, and let's say it took, in our measurements, it took 2,000 years for people to, really long time, for people to go, they accelerate in their spacecraft, they, um, they finally get to Alpha Centauri, they decelerate, they slow down, they, they come back again, and they come back to Earth, and for us, 2,000 years has passed. For them, they're like, oh, uh, yeah, that was a while, it was like 20 years, but it wasn't 2,000 years. And so there's this weird thing, it's called the twin paradox, that's a consequence of relativity theory that says that when you have an object that is going really fast, time will effectively elapse slower for the object that's going really fast than for one that isn't. And um, actually, we now understand why this happens. And roughly what's happening is, if you think of, uh, if you think of sort of the universe trying to work out what it's going to do, um, you can, it, it happens at a certain rate, time is elapsing at a certain rate, and there's sort of a trade-off between you sampling more of the universe by moving in space at a certain speed and the universe updating itself. And I, I soon when I can explain this whole physics theory, I can make that a lot more precise. But in, in standard relativity theory, there is a, um, it's a feature of relativity theory. It's, a, it's essentially a, a consequence of if you assume that there's nothing can go faster than the speed of light, the only way to make a consistent physics is to assume that space and time are distorted if you are going at a speed that's close to the speed of light. That's the only way to say nothing can go, oh, I was going to explain two things. Okay, so if you are running along, and let, let's say you have, uh, you hear a siren go by. Um, and well, the siren, um, you hear the, um, uh, now this is not the best way to explain it. Um, if you, uh, you, you're producing a sound. Well, there's sound, travels at a certain speed. It travels at the speed of sound in air. The speed of sound is, the, the sound is made of waves of compression and, and rarefaction in air. Those, those waves travel at a certain speed. It's about um, uh, 300 meters per second, 700 miles an hour. Um, it's, it's sort of the thing that limits the speed of standard airplanes is, is by not, they don't want to have uh, air that goes faster than the speed of sound over their wings because um, the characteristics of air are very different at the, um, uh, at the speed of sound than they are um, in um, uh, below the speed of sound. But in any case, so, so if we have something that's producing a sound, um, the, uh, um, uh, it, um, uh, you have a thing producing a sound, the sound is going at um, 700 miles an hour. Um, the, um, uh, it's, um, uh, but the thing that's producing the sound um, is, the, the um, uh, it can't, um, that, because there's air that's stationary, the sound can't go, you don't, you don't get, the sound is always just going at the speed of sound, the speed that sound goes at in the stationary air. Just because your, your airplane is going at 600 miles an hour doesn't mean that the sound that comes out from it is sort of going at 600 miles an hour plus the, the speed of sound. Um, 
it's um, I'm not explaining this very well. Sorry. The the but basically the 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 point is that there is a there is a uh, a medium that the sound is going in, and the sound goes at a certain speed in that medium. For light, we don't think there's any such medium, but there is the feature that even if the thing is going at the speed of light, even if you have a flashlight going at the speed of light, the light that it emits can't go at twice the speed of light, for example. The flashlight's going very close to the speed of light, it emits light at the speed of light. The light that comes out doesn't go at twice the speed of light, it only goes at the speed of light. And to make that consistent, the only way you can make that consistent is to have, uh, to imagine that length and time change when you're going at a higher speed. And that's what leads to this twin paradox thing that really happens as you go at a higher speed, time effectively slows down. And the, the main place, we, we don't see that very often in, in sort of real life. The only place we really see that is with the GPS satellites. The GPS satellites that, um, allow us to measure position. The way they measure position is you get a fix on, let's say, three or five GPS satellites, and you know the precise time that the radio signal came from satellite number 11 or something uh, and, and reached you. And from knowing that precise time, you can know how far it was to satellite number 11. And then by knowing the orbits of those satellites, you can compute based on the distance to three satellites or five satellites or whatever, you can work out exactly where you are. But to know that, you have to know the precise time at which the signal was emitted from the GPS satellite. And to know that um, depends on, because the GPS satellites are going at, uh, at orbital speed, 17,000 miles an hour or whatever, um, their uh, relativistic time dilation, as it's called, will slow their clocks down a bit. Now, this would be a great story. This would be a great story of this is an example of relativity in action. This is an example of the, the twin paradox. The GPS satellites are being slowed down in the same way that the, uh, the intrepid explorers who go to Alpha Centauri will be slowed down. It would be a great story, but for the fact that GPS satellites have computers in them, and in order to make it easier for GPS uh, receivers to process the data, the GPS satellites artificially change their clock speed to compensate for relativity. So they actually, they actually don't, uh, and that's a complicated thing to understand, that, um, but if let to natural, if it was a pendulum clock, if it was some mechanical device that was in there, not a clock that is connected to a computer and it's sort of a smart clock, it would follow relativity and it would show time dilation and so on. Um, is it theoretically possible to make a suit that will make you grow and shrink at will like an Ant-Man? Okay, uh, interesting question given that I claim I now understand something about how fundamental physics works, I should be able to answer that question. Um, the answer is, well, I don't think so. Um, although in some bizarre sense, there might be sort of mini copies of the universe that you can be running in the universe, but that's a slightly more abstract thing. There is one effect that I, that I might mention that's kind of a weird effect. Um, so atoms, usually they're protons, neutrons, electrons, um, electrons are these particles which people have always thought are like point particles. They don't have an extent. I think they actually do have a small extent. Um, but, uh, uh, but anyway, there are things called muons, which are just like electrons, but they're about 206 times heavier than electrons. And there's even another thing called a tau lepton, which is just like muons and electrons, but even heavier still. Nobody's ever understood what muons are, why they, why they exist. But muons, uh, and you probably, 
unfortunately, nobody's heard of muons. Muons are one of my favorite kinds of things in the universe. Um, they're, because they're so bizarre, mysterious, and, um, and so sort of obvious in a sense. They're just like electrons, but about 206 times heavier. Now it turns out uh, cosmic rays um, from the sun, uh, they're, they're high energy particles that come out of the sun in addition to producing light the sun also produces a bunch of other stuff, solar wind and which are charged particles coming out from the sun. Some of those make cosmic rays, which are just, they're mostly protons that hit the upper atmosphere of the earth. And they, most of the protons get, get, uh, get, get absorbed by the upper atmosphere and they produce a cascade of particles. And what we see at sea level on the earth is a bunch of muons about, I think it's about one a minute, go through a typical, go through us, so to speak, one of these little muons just like an electron, high, higher mass, they're quite, quite energetic muons that go, go through us. Um, and uh, muons, unlike electrons, are completely stable so far as we know. Muons decay, the, the average muon decays in two microseconds, two millionths of a second. Um, the, uh, uh, but as a result of time dilation, relativistic time dilation that I conveniently just mentioned, the muons that come in cosmic rays are going quite fast and so they actually live a lot longer than 2.2 microseconds. And in principle, when a muon is going fast enough, you can have it live as long as you want. I mean, if you have a muon that's going at 99.99999% of the speed of light, you could have a muon that will live for a few hours. Um, and people have even tried to imagine particle accelerators in which muons would keep going around for hours and hours. Uh, it hasn't actually been built, but things a little bit like that have been built. Um, but anyway, so why am I telling you this? Well because muons are just like electrons, except they're 206 times heavier. Well, if you were to conveniently get an atom where all of its electrons have been replaced by muons, you would have an atom that's 206 times smaller, as it turns out, I think that's right. Uh, maybe I have to work out my uh, Bohr radius for an atom. I think that's right. Yeah, it's linearly proportional to mass. Um, the, uh, uh, so 206 times smaller atoms than our ordinary atoms. So muonic atoms would be sort of like Ant-Man sized atoms. They have only one bug, not wishing to make the pun with ants. Their one bug is that the muons in them decay in 2.2 microseconds. Um, so these muonic atoms, they would be small, but they will decay very rapidly. And sorry, it's not gonna work. Um, but so the, the answer is I don't know any way to do that. Okay, so there's a question here, how does a satellite stay in orbit around the Earth? Um, uh, it's because of the force of gravity. And what's happening is when, if you, if you shoot a rocket straight up on the Earth and nothing else happened, it would just come straight down again. But if you, if you shoot it up and you insert it in orbit, you are, you're making it kind of, uh, um, you're making it go somewhat sideways it will be like it tries to fall towards the earth. And as it falls towards the earth, by the time it has sort of fallen, it has gone around the earth and that causes it to go in an orbit. And orbits, if around ordinary gravitating, gravitational objects are always ellipses, roughly circles. Um, so that's the, that's the best I can say of that. And, and the, what the force that causes it to stay in that orbit that attracts it to the earth is the force of gravity. Can we access other dimensions? So abstractly, we can perfectly well define higher dimensions. The problem is that in our physical universe, we don't seem to have more than three dimensions. Now, actually, I think 
that our universe can actually have a little bit more than three dimensions, can even have not even integer numbers of dimensions, um, which makes which is kind of a weird thing. But um, in, in most of space, uh, we are mostly seeing just three dimensions. And, and so we don't have, um, we don't have the ability, we, we, we cannot physically construct a thing that is more than three dimensional. Now, I would say that in some existing theories of physics, um, there's a, an area of physics um, uh, called string theory that um, uh, I think is, is very mathematically interesting. I think it's, um, uh, I don't think it's quite right physically, um, but I think it is mathematically very interesting and very relevant even to things I've been doing. Um, but uh, in string theory, in order to make everything work out nicely for the mathematics, it's really convenient if the universe really has 26 dimensions or 10 dimensions. And to explain why we don't actually see 26 dimensions, you have to kind of imagine that the extra dimensions are all curled up in little balls. And it's actually, honestly, in, in the, is it a plausible theory theory question, in, in the question of is that a plausible theory, if you start describing it to somebody, and you start explaining that, well, we don't see 22 of those dimensions because they're curled up in little balls, it sort of starts to seem very implausible. Um, but the answer is, in our uh, physical universe, uh, we seem to only have three dimensions. I actually think it isn't precisely the case that we only have three dimensions. In fact, um, and I think that um, there are, whether we can, in our current universe, access things that are effectively different number of dimensions is not clear, although I suspect that some phenomena related to black holes may have something to do with that. Okay, what are protons, neutrons, and electrons made of? Okay, well, the story is a bit different for, so first of all, let's remember what, where, we, where we run into protons, neutrons, and electrons. So atoms are, have a nucleus, which contains protons and neutrons, and they have electrons which are kind of sort of orbiting outside the nucleus. They're kind of hanging around outside the nucleus. So uh, it's a different story. Electrons are a different kind of thing than protons and neutrons. In the language of, of physics, uh, electrons are examples of things called leptons, and uh, protons and neutrons are examples of things called baryons or hadrons. Those are fancy words which probably get used if you study physics in college or graduate school and maybe don't get used by anybody else. Um, but they're sort of two different families of, of, of kinds of things. Okay, so let's start off with protons and neutrons. So it was discovered in the uh, 1960s, early 1960s, that protons and neutrons weren't just sort of point things, they were things that have a definite structure inside. And actually they have, um, uh, they, um, they're, they're well, they have a, a, the diameter of a proton is about 10 to the minus 15 meters, which is otherwise known as, let's see if I can do the conversion, 1,000 trillionth of a meter. So very small, but not zero. So what's inside protons and neutrons? Inside protons and neutrons, there are things called quarks. Um, and uh, that was kind of, quarks were originally, person I knew well actually, uh, kind of came up with that idea back in the early 1960s, that there might be something inside protons and neutrons. So roughly inside protons and neutrons, um, each one of those has three quarks inside it. And um, uh, like a proton has two up quarks and a down quark, and a neutron has one up quark and two down quarks. And that's kind of what makes those types of particles different is they have different quarks inside them. Now, one of the tricky things is you might say, well, why haven't I ever, why don't I have, you know, like, uh, 
why aren't there bottles of quarks around? Why, you know, protons and neutrons are very common. Why, why do we not have quarks uh, that we can actually see? Well, it's a very tricky thing. So quarks are these little particles which seem to be more or less uh, point particles. They more or less have zero size, not quite. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the question is, why do they never get out of protons and neutrons? And the answer is, there are these things called gluons, which are another kind of particle. And between these, these quarks are kind of bound together by gluons. They're gluons that are being exchanged between quarks. And the gluons are pulling very hard on these quarks. And so far as we can tell, it's not possible to get a quark outside of a proton or neutron. You can't ever pull it outside. So what happens roughly is this. So if you, if you look at, um, for instance, um, uh, the, um, uh, if you look at, let's say, the force of gravity, you might know as, as, as gravitational uh, masses get further apart, the force of gravity between them goes down. It's actually an inverse square law. So if, you, um, so if the distance between the objects is r, the force between them is, is proportional to one over r squared, okay? It's the same thing, actually, the same exact force law for uh, charged particles, particles that have electric charge. They also have a force law that goes like one over r squared. So as you make them further and further apart, the force between them gets less and less. Okay, so gluons make a force between quarks. And the really weird thing is that the force between quarks um, actually instead of going down as you pull the quarks apart, it actually goes up. It goes up roughly, um, roughly as the distance between them is, it goes up, it, the force increases as you make the distance go up. It's roughly proportional to the, to the distance between the quarks, the forces. So that means that you try and pull these quarks apart, it gets harder and harder and harder to pull them apart. So if you try and actually get a quark all the way out of a proton, you can never do it. So, so what's inside uh, protons and neutrons is this kind of, um, a uh, soup of quarks, mainly three quarks, and a bunch of gluons that are holding these quarks together. It's a little bit confusing. There are, um, there's a whole kind of uh, uh, cloud of quarks and antiquarks. We can talk about antiquarks and antimatter different time. But um, uh, roughly, it's, it's the sort of um, uh, cloud of particles inside protons and neutrons. So that, that's the story about what's inside protons and neutrons. So you might also ask, well, what's inside quarks? What's inside gluons? Well, the answer is nobody knows. Uh, you can ask the same question about electrons. As far as anybody can tell, electrons are uh, perfect point particles. It's like they have no, if you say, what's the radius of electro an electron? What people have always said in physics is, the radius of an electron is zero. It is like a perfect geometrical point. Now, I personally think that isn't correct. And actually, I happen to have been um, very recently working on kind of understanding what might be sort of underneath uh, fundamental physics. And I actually think that um, in the end, it's gonna turn out electrons are actually not uh, point particles. They actually have a size. It's actually very, very, very small. Um, but uh, and the, what's inside electrons, I think, is related to kind of how space works. Um, see space, normally we think of uh, sort of the, the universe, we, we say, we can put position things any way we want. We can say, we put this electron at this particular position. If we specify it by a number, it might be, you know, uh, position, uh, you know, 1.23758264, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We could just go on as many digits as we want. We can precisely say, we're going to put this electron at this precise place in space. 
I mean, how we actually do that with an experiment, we might not be sure, but at least when we're doing theory of physics, we can say we put this electron at this precise place. Okay, well, that would work fine so long as uh, space isn't, so long as space is itself continuous. If space was instead some grid where you could say, oh, we can only put an electron at this position on the grid or this other position on the grid or this other position, you wouldn't be able to do this thing of saying you can put it anywhere you want. Well, I actually think that in the end, it's going to turn out space, it isn't quite a grid, it's more like a network. And in fact, electrons correspond to these kind of uh, features of the network. It's kind of almost like little knots where you have little, little threads of, of network that connect pieces of space and electrons are kind of like little knots in that network. And in fact, that, that means that in a sense, when you say what's inside an electron, what's inside an electron is a kind of space, but a funny kind of space. Um, but it's all, uh, that, that's, I mean, that's kind of a, that's, that's physics that doesn't yet exist because it's physics I've been working on that, that wasn't for um, this pandemic, I would be telling people much more about. Um, but anyway, so that's that's kind of the story of electrons is that the usual theory in physics is there's nothing inside electrons, they're just point particles. Um, I think that isn't correct. They, they actually have a small extent and sort of what's inside them is a special version of, of ordinary space. Same with, with quarks. In ordinary, in physics, as it's been thought about for the last 50 years or so, it's the idea is quarks are also point particles with nothing inside them. But again, I don't think that's correct. Um, Okay, long answer to that, um, uh, that question. Let me go back here. And um, uh, I, I can also, I, I might also say, when you start asking about um, very small things like electrons, there are lots of tricky phenomena that happen. Um, and uh, maybe we'll talk about them some more later about uh, this thing called quantum mechanics um, that kind of is all about uh, the fact that you can't, when you think you know where the electron is, maybe it isn't quite there, you can't quite localize it and so on. Long story. All right, let's come to some other questions here. Uh, okay, there was a question at the beginning. If neutron stars are just made of neutrons, how come they produce light? I don't think they usually produce light. They produce radio waves. Um, if they produce, so let, let me explain a little bit. I think I talked last time a little bit about neutron stars. So when a star, uh, Billions of years from now, our sun, for example, will uh, kind of run out of fuel and it will just become a smaller, uh, a smaller star. But some other stars a bit more massive than the sun um, can end up having these giant supernova explosions. And what gets left over after that explosion is often a neutron star, which is kind of something about the mass of the sun, but compressed into something maybe five miles across. So it's a very, very dense object. It's actually very much like the nucleus of an atom, except very big, like a, a, a five mile across atomic nucleus, all made of neutrons. So the, um, you, so the question is, how do you even know that there's a neutron star there? Because like a neutron, it's just this big lump of, of stuff that is like an atomic nucleus. How would you know it's there? Okay, well, it turns out that, so one of the things that happens Boy, this is some complicated physics. Let me try and explain it. So you, you probably know that the Earth has a magnetic field. So that means that's why compasses work. So the Earth has a north and south magnetic pole. It's like a, it's like a giant bar magnet. 
the earth, the earth acts like a giant bar magnet, and that's why a compass needle can be can you know point towards the north and south poles. Um, and so the earth, the earth is kind of has this uh, magnetic field. What produces the magnetic field? It's probably produced by uh, essentially electric currents in the liquid core of the earth. Um, it's not completely clear how that works. And one of the things that's weird is you think that the North Magnetic Pole is to the north, and it is right now. The North Magnetic Pole is somewhere in Northern Canada right now. But over the course of history, the magnetic poles of the Earth actually move around. And it's not been many hundreds of years uh, since they've been actually in quite different positions than they are now. So uh, that's probably because of changes in the flow of, of uh, the kind of molten rock in the, in the center of the Earth that's changing and causing the magnetic field to be in a different orientation. But anyway, so the Earth has a magnetic field. The moon, for example, does not have a magnetic field. Jupiter has a big magnetic field. The sun also has a magnetic field. And it's thought that most stars have magnetic fields. And um, so that means that there are essentially electric currents in the sun that are producing this magnetic field. And it's like a giant bar magnet. Okay, so what happens is when, when this star uh, has a supernova and it kind of compresses down to this, uh, to this neutron star, the, the magnetic field can't go away. The magnetic field has to be that it, that it had when it was a, a big sort of uh, a large star is still there, but it has to be sort of compressed down to kind of fit around this little tiny neutron star. And so that ends up with a pretty intense magnetic field. And so what happens is this thing is like a, a, a bar magnet, a really quite strong bar magnet. And um, boy, this is some complicated physics. Okay, so what happens is that electrons spiral around the, the magnetic field lines um, of this bar magnet. And the same thing happens for the Earth, actually. There are electrons that come from the sun, for example, that spiral around in the magnetic field of the Earth near the North and South Poles. And so, for example, that's what causes the aurora. The aurora, you know, if you go to the northern, uh, far up north, and um, it's good weather, and you let your eyes get dark adapted and so on, you'll see this really cool, uh, it's usually red, green, all kinds of other colors, um, sort of curtain-like um, pattern in the sky. That's the aurora, and that's produced by electrons that originally came from the sun, spiraling around the magnetic field of the near the north pole of the Earth, and um, uh, causing uh, particularly things like oxygen in the upper atmosphere of the Earth to um, uh, to produce uh, light of different colors, in kind of the same way that a fluorescent light bulb produces light. It's sort of the same rough idea of how light is produced um, in the upper atmosphere in an aurora. But anyway, so that's a place where you're producing, um, in that case, it's producing light because these electrons are hitting um, uh, oxygen, uh, other uh, things in the upper atmosphere. Okay, in a, in a um, uh, with a neutron star, electrons can be, uh, can be kind of uh, made, they spiral around in the magnetic field and they spiral around really quite fast. And one feature of electrons that are spiraling around like that is they uh, produce, um, they, they emit radio waves. And that's true in general. If you have, you know, when you have a radio antenna, the way the radio antenna works is that it's making electrons go up and down, up and down, up and down at a certain frequency. Like a typical cell phone, it might be uh, 
two billion times a second, five billion times a second, that kind of um, uh, that kind of thing. The electrons are going up and down, up and down in the antenna that's on the side of your cell phone. So it's the same type of thing when electrons in magnetic field of a, of a neutron star are going around uh, really fast and they're kind of being uh, made to go around in these circles. And that produces the same effect of making radio waves that happens in something like a cell phone. Uh, but those radio waves are, are pretty intense. Um, and uh, we can uh, we can detect those radio waves, even though these neutron stars may be um, a thousand light years away or uh, really far away across the, across the galaxy. And so the, um, the result of that is, okay, so I have to explain one more thing. Gosh, I'm, I don't get to explain this kind of stuff very often. So I'm, I'm, um, I, I never, I'm not quite sure how much there is to explain, but let me keep going. So another feature of, of neutron stars is they, they typically spin around very rapidly. And that's kind of for the same reason that, that, that the sun is, is spinning at a certain speed. If it were to be compressed down to a neutron star, it would spin much faster in order to conserve its so-called angular, moment, angular momentum. So, okay. So anyway, this neutron star, it's spinning around very rapidly. It has electrons that are, that are um, producing radio waves. And what happens is as the, um, uh, as the thing spins around, it's essentially producing um, as it, because the, the, um, the way the electrons, gosh, a little complicated, in the magnetosphere of a pulsar, which is the kind of, the kind of sheath of magnetic stuff around the pulsar, it's not quite uniform. And so there'll typically be one direction where it is producing more radio energy, radio waves than in other directions. And so the pulsar turns around and as the pulsar spins around, I, 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 I cheated here, I already told you the answer. So this neutron star, is, I should have said just neutron star is spinning around. It, as, it, as it spins around, it'll send this beam of radio waves in a, in a particular the beam of radio waves that it's producing will spin around as well. And so if we're over here on the earth, as this neutron star spins around, every so often its beam of, its radio beam will point towards the earth. And so if we are listening on the right radio frequency, we'll be able to essentially hear that radio signal coming from the neutron star. Okay, so back in 1968, people were doing radio astronomy. They were trying to uh, use telescopes that uh, uh, kind of detect radio waves. And they discovered this strange phenomenon that um, they were hearing pulses in radio pulses that were coming from particular stars in the sky, particularly uh, the Crab Nebula is one, one famous one. And so it's like, what was this? I think I mentioned this last time, but, but um, uh, the, you, know, you, you hear this kind of pulse and it's sort of a regular pulse. And the first guess was, gosh, that must be a beacon of some extraterrestrial civilization that's saying, hello, we're here. You know, it's like a, a, a navigation beacon or something from an extraterrestrial civilization. And that's what, for the first two weeks, I think people thought that's what that might be. And then they realized, no, actually it's a neutron star and those things are called pulsars, pulsing stars. And um, they, uh, pulsars produce these um, sort of pulses of radio energy. I don't think that they produce, um, I don't think there's visible light that gets generated. If there is visible light, it comes from a different phenomenon of accretion disks where there's matter that's kind of being dragged into the, into the neutron star. But I don't think that happens with neutron stars. It happens with black holes. I don't think it happens with neutron stars, but I might be wrong about that. Um, 
but in any case, the, the pulsars, we now know a whole bunch of pulsars um, around the galaxy. Um, and uh, they're, 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 they're really cool objects because they're these, they're these uh, whole stars that spin around like they're even millisecond pulsars, which means they spin around a thousand times a second. The whole star is spinning a thousand times a second and producing, um, uh, producing a radio signal that um, uh, is, is about a thousand times a second uh, we, we hear a pulse from it. Um, and you can do all kinds of weird things. Like for example, let's say you wanted to work out how to do GPS in space. So GPS is uh, you know, how we find how cars and planes and other things find their position on the earth. And the way it works is there are satellites orbiting the earth, the constellation of, I don't know how many it is these days, maybe 60, 70 satellites orbiting the earth um, that uh, uh, each produce pulses with a known interval. And so when your, your GPS receiver can tell, oh yes, the pulse I got from satellite number 17 took exactly um, 21 milliseconds, 21.125864 something or something milliseconds to arrive because the pulses are, they have a certain code that tells you when the pulse, when the GPS satellite produced that particular pulse and you know when you measured that pulse. So that allows you to work out because you know the speed of light, you can just work out um, uh, how far away the satellite was and that tells you what you, if you know three satellites, you can triangulate to find your position. Okay, so one of the questions is, if we were in space, if we were doing some, you know, we were going off and we were sending a spacecraft to, uh, to Pluto or something, um, as far away from the GPS satellites that are orbiting the Earth, they're not going to do us any good in telling us where our, where our spacecraft is. How can we, what's the kind of inter, uh, interplanetary or even interstellar version of GPS that we could use? And so one, people, one thing people have thought about is to use pulsars as kind of an interstellar GPS system, because we know where all these pulsars are. Each pulsar has a definite series of pulses that it produces, and so you can use that to figure out how far exactly, how far away are you from this, from all these different pulsars. And that gives you a way to get a kind of location in interstellar space um, that uh, gives you sort of a, a way to do that. I mean, a, a more simple minded way to do it, which is what uh, a lot of deep space probes do is they just have a little telescope and they look for different stars and they say, in what, what, what is the orientation of um, you know where what what direction do I have to be pointed in to see this star and that star and they do things that way. Okay, so the question from MC is how do magnets work? Okay, well, there are the um, uh, all right. Magnets like lumps of metal that make magnets. I can explain how those work. You can also make magnets by using electric field, by using electricity. And in the end, magnets like lumps of metal work in kind of the same way as magnets that are made with electricity, but it's a little bit tricky to explain exactly their correspondence. So let me start off by talking about um, magnets um, that are made of pieces of metal. So the most common kinds of magnets, bar magnets made of iron, um, uh, the, the three chemical elements, iron, cobalt, nickel, which are next to each other in the periodic table, which means that they have uh, uh, adjacent numbers of protons because the periodic table just is this table of all the different possible kinds of atoms um, where 
Each one is arranged from hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, etc. Each one is hydrogen has one proton, helium has two protons, etc. That's that's how the periodic table works. In one part of the table is uh, 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 iron, iron, cobalt, nickel, um, and uh, uh, those. That's the most common thing that magnets are made of. There are also things called rare earth magnets, which are actually much stronger magnets. Most common, let's see, I think. Um, uh, gadolinium, europium, samarium, I think, are common examples of rare earth magnets. Um, those, are, those are also elements in the periodic table. They're also metals, um, and they produce, they allow you to make stronger magnets. Okay, so how do these magnets work? Well, uh, basically, a big magnet, like a big lump of iron that's a magnet, uh, the way it works is it has a lot of really tiny magnets that are all lined up inside it. Those tiny magnets are actually iron atoms, um, and uh, the iron atoms are themselves little tiny magnets. And the big thing that makes the big lump of metal act like a magnet is that all those little tiny magnets are all lined up. So here's the thing not to do with a magnet that you want. Don't put it in an oven, and, um, because if you put it in an oven and heat it up, uh, there's a temperature, it's called the Curie temperature, um, at which it loses its magnetic field, it loses its magnetism. So what happens is, uh, just like if you take a block of ice that's you know solid, all the atoms are all lined up in the block of ice, and you heat it up, eventually it'll turn into a liquid, and the atoms won't all be lined up, they'll all be you know, running around all over the place. The same thing happens in a magnet. So an ordinary magnet, when it is magnetized, and it is at uh, ordinary room temperature, um, the, uh, the atoms inside that magnet all have what are called their spins, the little tiny mag magnets are all lined up. And so that means you'll have uh, trillions and trillions of little tiny magnets all lined up and they all line up in the same direction. And so they make a big, they make the whole thing act as a big magnet. If you heat it up, it essentially the magnets uh, uh, kind of, it's, it's like they, uh, uh, like they melt and um, it doesn't, it's, it's long before the lump of iron actually melts, long before the, the actual atoms in the iron get separated to the point where the iron becomes a liquid, long before that, the, um, the alignment of the little tiny magnets that these iron atoms are, um, that gets broken down and so your magnet will lose its magnetic field. So if you care about your magnet, don't heat it up to that point because it will lose its magnetism. Now, the good news is you can always give it back its magnetism. If you, if you um, uh, put it in a magnetic field again, it will, um, the, the iron atoms will line up again and you'll make a magnet again. Um, although you might make a magnet that's in a different direction than the magnet that you had before. So, so the, way that, um, the way that sort of things like bar magnets, big magnets and things work is uh, they have these little tiny atomic scale magnets and they all get lined up and that's how you get one of these big magnets. And it's only certain metals that, um, uh, certain materials that have this feature that their atoms can line up in this way. Um, it, it's still the case that if you picked out an individual atom of um, uh, uh, almost any element, it could act like a tiny magnet itself, but it's only in certain materials that all those little tiny magnets can get lined up to make what's called ferromagnetism. Um, it's, uh, that's, the, that's the name for the phenomenon where 
where all the, all the little tiny magnets line up to make a, a, a big magnet. So anyway, that, that's the way that magnets, that's the way things like bar magnets um, work. The, um, the way that um, you can make a magnetic field uh, without having any of these atomic magnets, um, you do that by having um, the, uh, so electricity and magnetism are closely related. And it turns out that if you have, for example, a loop of wire and you have electricity flowing through that loop of wire, in, in, it will produce a magnetic field. Um, so uh, maybe I could explain another time how that really works. But um, basically when, when electrons that make electricity are moving around in a circle, they produce a magnetic field um, that is, goes sort of, uh, sort of perpendicular to the circle. Um, and that's, so that's how, that's how electromagnet, electromagnets work. And they're, they're very convenient. Like for example, if you have a, you know, a door that's supposed to be locked or not locked, to, um, you can do that by having a, what's called a solenoid, which is one of these electro, it's an electromagnet. And that means that when, if you have, if there's an electric current, if there's electricity flowing through this coil, then it will produce a magnet. And if there isn't electricity flowing through there, it won't make a magnet. So if you have two, two of these things next to each other, for example, you can say, okay, there's electric field going through these, so they make a magnet, so they're held together. Oh, you switch the electric field off, oh, then they'll break apart. Um, so that's a, a very convenient thing, because it means you can have magnets that you can kind of switch on and off just by switching electricity on and off. Now, the, the, the tricky thing that's a little bit more complicated is, um, in some sense, the magnets that are these atomic magnets are actually made from something analogous to a loop of wire. Because what's actually happening is that the electrons in, um, uh, inside the atoms are kind of going around the atoms, just like the electrons go around that loop of wire, but it's like a little tiny loop of wire the size of an atom. And that's kind of how the magnetic field gets made um, in, in just at the level of the individual atoms in, in iron, for example. Now, okay, in, in sort of, uh, to be really exact, there is another thing that happens. These individual particles, like an individual electron, actually is like a tiny bar magnet. And so I was telling you earlier, electrons are either of zero size or at least very, very small. And so there's, a, there's kind of a question of how, how an electron manages to have what it takes to make a magnetic field just um, uh, by, uh, just as a, as, a, as a thing itself. And nobody knows how that works. Um, it's, uh, I think, this new theory that I have for how fundamental physics works probably explains that, although I don't yet know how that works. I mean, if, you, if you're interested in, there's a phenomenon called spin, which is a, a feature of, um, uh, of particles. Again, I'd be happy to talk about it. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting and complicated story. Um, electrons have spin a half, uh, photons have spin one. Uh, all these different particles have a certain spin which, and many of those particles, when they have an electric charge and they have a spin, they'll, they, they uh, will be, act like little magnets. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.